on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. When you think of Sheryl Crow, you probably think of songs you want to rock out to while you're driving down the street. Soak up the sun, all I want to do, every day's a winding road. But you may not think of Cheryl the woman or Cheryl the mother. And let me tell you, that will all change with this conversation you're about to hear. Beyond rocking out on stage in those killer jeans, there's so much more to Cheryl Crow, and I'm so excited for you to hear how we connected. Like me, Cheryl's a breast cancer survivor and a mom later in life, also by way of adoption. Her otherwise private personal life became very public during her engagement and subsequent breakup with Lance Armstrong. But these days, just shy of 60 years old, I know, I couldn't believe it either, right? Cheryl is happy. She's willing to open up and be honest about getting to the other side of so many trying moments in life. I hope you enjoy my conversation with rock star Cheryl Crow. I'm Hoda Kotb. Welcome to my podcast, Making Space. Wait, I'm talking to you. Can you hear me? Yes, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Hi. Oh my God, I'm dying. First of all, hi. Hi. I'm so happy. I have been waiting for this interview patiently because um, I have always felt weirdly connected to you in so many different ways because I feel like our lives have these weird parallel paths. And the more I learn about you, the more I feel it. And I just want to say, I'm just, I've missed you for a long time. I'm just happy to sit with you. But how are you? You're in Nashville. Okay, I'm good. Um, I'm in Nashville. We are doing a Mm -hmm. little bit of touring, mostly Mm -hmm. on the weekends. Um, Boys are 11 and 14. No, they're not. I am seriously not a cool mom anymore. I'm like, you just don't know, mom. You just don't, you don't know, mom. You don't get it. You don't get it. can I remind you of something? You were here at the Today Show downstairs in the dressing room with your boys when they were little. Yeah. And I went down there and I remembered thinking, watching you with your kids, I want something like that yes. one day. And I'm telling you, uh, I have more friends. I'm just like, you can do this. Babies are coming in and they you don't get the wrong kids. It just doesn't happen that way. And my kids so clearly not only picked me, but picked each other. And Mm. man, what a cool honor. You know, I tell my kids all the time, I am so honored to be your mom. You know, I mean, I even told my 14-year-old that last night because he hugged my parents as they were leaving. Just involuntarily. My dad's 89 and my mom's 84. And Mm. I said... I love you so much, but I just want to tell you what a cool person you are. Because not everybody just wants to volunteer a hug. You know, you're a teenager. 
He just got up and hugged him, and I was just like, "Man, that you're a, you're an awesome boy with a giant heart." And he's like, "I know, mom. I know, mom." Like, I know. <laughs> Wasn't it I your know. mom, Cheryl, at the beginning? Because, I mean, I I remembered thinking like I never spoke out loud the fact that I wanted children mm-hmm. because I thought I had missed my window. Yes. So I thought I hate to say something out loud that I know can't happen. So I didn't speak it. And one day I was walking with a girlfriend down a street, and she said, "Well, me and you, we didn't want to have kids, you know. So it worked out great." And I said, well, I actually did. Yeah. And I just thought I missed it. And I, I just remember saying it out loud and how weird that was yeah. to speak it yeah. and then to say it again. And it kind of like made it, it made it real. Sometimes I feel like even if you whisper your secret into the mirror, the bathroom yes. mirror, at least it gives it breath yeah. and life. Did you always want kids? Did you Did you talk about it when you were younger? Did you always think about it? I just never... I just never didn't think I would have kids, you know, and I, yeah. I think I, I was thinking of it in the context of family. I wasn't mm-hmm. like, it wasn't like I saw myself being pregnant. I couldn't wait to experience mm-hmm. having a baby inside of me. It wasn't so much that it was much more about the wonder of getting to raise a person, you know? Um, mm. I mean, obviously, as you know, Hoda, I was 45 mm-hmm. when I adopted my first one. I was 48 when I adopted my second one. Um, I, I had the gift of getting a lot of things out of my system before I had my kids mm-hmm. or before I got my kids. So there wasn't anything that I felt like I was missing. If I stayed mm-hmm. home and something was going on, I just didn't feel like I was missing anything, that I wanted to be anywhere else. And that's that's a gift. I think if I was in my 20s and even early 30s trying to be in the world that I've lived in for the last 28 years— I might have been pulled in a lot of different directions. But, you know, there's one thing about a woman and the biological clock. You know, we get blamed a lot for the demises of relationships. Well, her biological clock or Mm -hmm. uh, she wanted kids and I wasn't ready for that. And it's such a, I don't want to say a sexist thing, but it does feel like that, you know. Mm -hmm. And I remember my last relationship crumbling largely because that is what I wanted. I didn't want to be somebody's Mm -hmm. girlfriend and raised there their kids. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't want to be a stepmom and not be made a wife and a mom. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like being in a relationship with someone, but being also the babysitter, but not being getting to be the real parent. And yeah, mm-hmm. that did crumble that relationship. And I came out of it and also had breast cancer and went through that. And it was my mom who said, why don't you just get a surrogate and get some sperm and my head is like exploding. Like, what did she just say? Like, just have my own babies? What? <laughs> um, but it was that. It was her saying, look, you know what? If you adopt, we you have a family around you who will stand yes. at the altar with you at baptism and say, we are his community or her mm. community. Mm. And that's what they did. And that's kind of what gave me the, you know, the life raft to not limit myself to that. Oh, you've got to be married. you got to mm-hmm. be stable. Uh, then you have kids. My story didn't lay out like that, but the story I was telling myself limited what I thought I could have till somebody stepped in and mm. said, wait a minute, your story doesn't have to look like your mom and dad's story. You know, yeah. it doesn't have to look like the conventional family that you had. Families look like all different things. And you know what's interesting? You just, you said something in the in the middle of that story that struck me too, because um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer at the same time um, 
my relationship was falling apart. And what was weird about that moment, when you just mentioned it, I had this Mm -hmm. weird feeling. But what I remember about it was, it was kind of strange because I felt like I had two pains going on at the same time and I couldn't go down the rabbit hole on one. Like I was so angry at him and then I had to go in for my test and they were like, you need a mastectomy. And then I was so mad at the doctors and why me? And I ate apples and ran in Central Park. And what are you talking about? I was so mad. And then and then I was thinking about, but what about, oh, and him, you know, but it was almost like having two kids and one kid's coloring on the wall and the other kid's spilling flour all over the floor. And you only have so much attention so you can't yes. get super mad at that kid because you got this kid over here. <laughs> so you're just, so you're, weirdly, your grief is kind of lessened. And I wondered in a weird way, did that help me in some strange way? I couldn't, I couldn't get so depressed on one thing because I had two things to worry about. Yes. I, you know, uh, well, I mean, not to analyze my last relationship, mm-hmm. and it was a public relationship. There were a lot of facets to mm-hmm. it, but it was a relationship that, um, that I seem to keep going back to. And I think when I got diagnosed with breast cancer, that was like, oh, wait a minute. I think we Mm -hmm. have to really look at this and you have to put yourself first. And once I got that message, I really had to sit down and learn how to hold an emotion. Um, I remember my friend who I used to say was kind of psychic, but he said, no, everybody's intuitive. (laughs) It's just whether you really want to know the truth. He had said to me, he's like, you know, Emotions are the gateway to awakening. And I had not really understood Mm. that until I had to go through a real grieving process. I had to not do that thing that we we get so good at, which is, oh, just don't think about it. Just stay busy. Just make yourself busy. busy. Don't dwell in it. And that is the antithesis of what we need to do for healing. Um, You know, we need to actually sit with the pain, the anger, the grief, um, all of it that goes along with getting to the other side. Um, And, you know, the only way to get through it is to, you know, plow through it and experience it. And so for me, I just embraced it. I said, I'm not going to make a record. I'm not going to pick up my guitar. I'm not going to journal. I'm actually going to sit and be angry and be sad and be and grieve and all that. And when I came out of it, I just felt like, okay, I remember now who I am. And (laughs) all these events, I think, kind of help us remember who we are. We get so far away from it sometimes with all the messaging that we put on ourselves about who we are or we aren't. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, man, it was a real, it was a serious cleanup. Wow. Cleanup on aisle seven. (laughs) No, I love like no records and no journaling. That's interesting just to sit in the middle of it. And I think that that's something that's really big because I just, we just interviewed a couple of people. I was just thinking about Chelsea Handler said she had to get all the way right with herself before she could, you know, kind of square with someone she wanted to meet. No, it's true. I mean, that same guy that that spoke to me about, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, holding an emotion is the same person that said, at a certain point, you weigh how much someone is giving you emotionally and how much Mm -hmm. um, they're taking away emotionally. And, you know, when you Mm -hmm. get down to just, you know, once you take the the attraction away from it and you Mm -hmm. look at what what they give to your life, what they bring to you, if they edify or if they're, um, you know, trying to dim your light, it it mm-hmm. you can step away from it, but when you're in it, it's so hard, you know? It's hard. It's hard. It is. Did you ever, I never, and this is probably not healthy, this is me, I, I never really had a follow-up conversation after it was over. That was the end. 
Yeah. Um, and that's how I played it. Well, I mean, I think in some situations, um, I mean, man, I'll tell you what, I, I am blessed to have a wise mom, but she said, mm-hmm. no matter what you think you're going to get from that conversation, you're never going to get what you think. And I mm. mean, that's just, that's part of, I guess, the end of a relationship. There's not generally closure mm-hmm. unless you both are, I mean, that if if you communicated that way, you might not have split. But in my relationship, mm-hmm. I was not ever going to get the kind of answer I thought I was going to get. Yeah, and that's interesting. I would always come yeah. back and go, I'd feel like I'd been gaslighted. Like for me, part yeah. of that not being productive was just sitting with all of it and and mm-hmm. not I don't know if you're like this, Hoda, but I have measured myself for almost my whole life by my productivity, mm-hmm. and that's what gave me self-worth, and not mm-hmm. just not just the quantity, but the quality. You know, it couldn't be mm-hmm. it couldn't be ten songs. It had to be ten great songs, mm-hmm. and they couldn't be t- ten top two hundred songs. They had to be ten top ten songs. You know, it's like. Mm-hmm. At it's a certain exhausting. point, it's exhausting, yeah. and you wind up never feeling fulfilled. So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes in order to fill yourself, you have to, like, sit with it. Coming up, more with Cheryl Crow as she reflects on her career and what it took to break into the industry and the obstacles she had to overcome. Every parent is a busy parent. There's enough on your plate without piling on your kids' homework. And considering how much teaching methods have changed, most of us are a little rusty anyway. Consider IXL, an excellent resource for homework that can make a huge impact on your child's ability to learn. Backed by research, kids using IXL are actually scoring higher on their tests. Our techniques help them master topics in a fun way, complete with positive feedback. We're seeing improvements all across the country, as IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S., And IXL is also very affordable. One month of IXL costs less than the typical hour of tutoring. On just one website, IXL covers all the kids in your home from pre-K to 12th grade. Sign up today to get 20% off your membership at IXL.com slash H-O-D-A. That's IXL.com slash H-O-D-A. I was just thinking back to your the the infancy of your career, and I know that people look at you and think, you know, they see you, um, first of all, just, I, I watched you, I think, at Radio City. That was one of my final concerts before the world shut down, and I loved every second of it. But I was just thinking about people probably think, well, that was, somehow it was easy for her. But I loved knowing that, and I think it was 1986, you were pound in the pavement and they were like, no, darling, no, no, not you. Nothing, no doors were opening and you were, you were talented. So what was happening there? Well, you know, I look back on it and I think, man, I was so lucky to come up when I did and not come up now because now everything is so brand oriented and so all about Mm self-promotion. But back in the old days, back in the dark ages, um, (laughs) I moved from St. Louis, where I was a school teacher, and I thought, well, I was 25. Well, no, I was 24. 
And mm-hmm. I had a bunch of tapes and I thought, I'm just going to go out to LA and see what happens. And I got a Thomas guide and I found out where all the studios were. And I took my tapes to every studio and thought, well, um, if I get them to the studios and somebody will pick it up and listen to it and discover me, you know, and slowly I wound up getting a little bit of work. And then I overheard some backup singers talking about the Michael Jackson audition. And then I crashed the Michael Jackson audition. And I mean, it just... It's funny. Crash the Michael Jackson audition. Yes. Just, just even to say that out loud. It's crazy. And I think yeah. part of my, what was in my favor was my naivete. I mean, I just didn't ever mm-hmm. think, um, I just thought, well, if, what's the worst thing that can happen? Sorry, you can't come in. You weren't recommended. Well, you know, mm-hmm. it just, it's hard to explain. But all, all I would say is that what seemed like an overnight success, my first album didn't even come out until I was almost 30. So, oh, really? yes, and 30 by all intents and purposes in the rock and roll world. Yeah. I mean, I'm old enough to be at 30, probably <laughs> Olivia Rodrigo's mom, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I can remember uh, meeting Taylor Swift on an airplane, and she was literally mm-hmm. a teenager, and I was like old enough to be her mom. Um, so, yeah, and I've been really lucky. I, I've had now. Um, God, I hate to even say it, but I'm getting ready to turn 60. So um, I'll be 60 let's in February. Sit, and so I've had 30 that, amazing girl. years. You know, I've had incredible uh, an incredible journey. And I don't know that mm-hmm. you can even have that kind of career anymore because the attention span is so shrunk and everything mm-hmm. is so fast and all about social media and here today and gone tomorrow. I'm mm-hmm. just... I feel lucky that I had those pound the pavement years where nobody would give me a record deal because I was a a blue-eyed soul singer is what they called it. Uh Back Uh in the day when Madonna, I mean, it was all about Madonna and Paula Abdul and people were like, we don't know what to do with you. All of us, when we get to a certain point, have to reckon with the events and moments from our past, some of them really painful. Cheryl is right there now. While filming an upcoming documentary, she revealed something she'd been living with since the very beginning of her career, an experience she once said was a crash course in the dark side of the music industry at that time, but one that she is still wrestling with today. Showtime's doing a documentary on me, which I think comes out sometime next year. Oh, how do you feel about that? Um, well, you know, I always feel like those things should come out after you're dead and gone. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping I'm not ushering in like the back nine of my life. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it's weird. It's It was really emotional for me to dig back all the way, you know, to my earliest memories. It was a little bit like mm. sitting in a psychiatrist's chair. Very mm. emotional and very exhausting. Um, maybe people watch it. Maybe they're burnt out on it. I don't know. But, you know, it's It's a story worth telling. Um, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there people wouldn't ever know. What was the the thing that you were the most surprised that you sort of unearthed in that documentary? Well, um, you know, one of the things I hadn't really talked about was my experience with being sexually harassed um, on the Michael Jackson mm-hmm. tour. And that mm-hmm. was, you know, it's it is one of those things where we've come so far, but yet we've... Mm-hmm barely mm-hmm. gotten our feet in the room yet. You know, we've got mm-hmm. one foot and it's, uh, it's you know, it's emotional to talk about. Are there certain conversations we thought we would not be having in 2021 again? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here, here we sit. Yeah. Here we sit. Do you feel like you're healed from that? 
um, Cheryl? I, um, yeah, I mean, I do, certainly. Um, but, you know, it's creepy when you talk about it. it uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, part of it is the secrecy um, mm-hmm. of not being able to tell anybody for fear of getting fired and, you know, just just to, for it to fall on deaf ears and to really feel completely unprotected and um, and disregarded. I think that's the part for women that is the most troubling is to have it fall on deaf ears. Um, but yeah, I do. I mean, I feel healed from it. I, I felt like I didn't feel like the person that I was before going into that because I was very naive. I was raised to believe mm-hmm. that if you're a good person and if you work hard, all yeah. good things happen. And yeah. um, that wasn't the way it was. I mean, I learned that the music business is not based on merit. It's based on, or particularly back then, it's based on, you know, payola, favors, mm-hmm. what can we make off this person? Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's it's interesting. And it's also interesting to be my age and look at what, how we are portraying ourselves as women as a, mm-hmm. um, as a means of displaying our power. We're using our sexuality. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for me to understand where's, Where's the line of feminism meets mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. manipulation? And it's just, I don't know. Mm. It's confusing to me still. Oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I'm so sorry anything bad happens to you, by oh, the way. Oh, well. Um, did the, you did can't the get through who, life without, you know, with, know. You, can't, you can't escape the, the bruises and the knocks. But that's what makes you I who know. you are, you know? Did the person who was the, I guess, perpetrator, did mm-hmm. that person have to pay a price? Um, well, ultimately he wound up getting fired as Michael Jackson's manager, but then, uh, later on, he, I think he died of a massive heart attack after I'd written the song that kind of stirred things Mm. up and made, made him mad and, um, lawsuits were threatened and then he passed away. So what can you do? (laughs) What what was the song? What was the song? Uh, Well, there were two songs. What I can do for you was my first record. It was about the experience. And then... In the Nana song, which is kind of funny, um, what was happening at the time was Anita Hill, the hearings were going on. And of course, President Biden was residing over the Senate hearings, and she was basically disregarded. And um, Mm -hmm. Clarence Thomas went on to become a Supreme Court judge. And Mm -hmm. um, in the lyric, it says, uh, Clarence Thomas and Frank DeLeo in the same line. Um, So you'll have to go back and look at the lyrics. Coming up next, you didn't think I'd let Cheryl say she was turning 60 without asking her how she really feels about it. Plus, we'll talk more about those beautiful kids. Stay with us. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway. 
And on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So wait, you said the word 60. Um, I said it. How there, did I that, said it. How, how did that feel coming off your tongue? How does how do how do you sit with with sixty? How does that feel? You know those little bumps you get on the side of your tongue that are like a little canker sore or whatever. That's what it feels like. <laughs> oh, um, no, I mean, yeah, I don't love it, but um, <laughs> I am happy. Um, I something really changed after the cancer episode and getting my kids yeah. and uh you know if i if i never got to sing another song i would still feel the joy that i feel right now mm. and that's a good place to be you know for somebody who's mm. always measured themselves by shucking and jiving through mm-hmm. you know life like look at me i can twirl i can sing mm-hmm. i can play the mm-hmm. bass and the piano you know mm-hmm. and to be able to say you know what i love my life Mm. Um, it's a great place to be. Now, what what has motherhood given you that um, your work couldn't, that relationships couldn't? Well, it's created a, a barometer for sure. I mean, I don't make any decisions that aren't pretty well decided by virtue of what my kids have going on. Mm-hmm. So, although that I'm sure irritates everyone around me, I don't plan anything without. Like I've already been told by my 11 year old, he doesn't want to go on the tour this summer. Oh, he wants to stay home and play baseball and you know hang out with his oh. friends. So, so now what do we do? Well, we're gonna and we got invited to play in Europe the first week of school. I don't want to do that. Ooh, okay. We've been learning the lesson of first of all compromise and secondly, uh, mm-hmm. uh, f- friendly. Uh, this is what happens when you're six. You can't uh, think of dictator? words. A friendly dictatorship. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so if it doesn't work in the compromise, then there's the friendly dictatorship. Uh, but before I could be happy being a mom, I had to be happy. And that mm. was the first thing. And then being a mm-hmm. mom has been the greatest, the greatest gift and the greatest occupation. I mean, I, I have full respect for moms across the board. Mm-hmm. Do you have room for uh, another love in your life, do you think? I do. Um, do you already have that? I don't. <laughs> okay, I wasn't sure. <laughs> um, I don't. I, um, I mean, I don't want to say sadly. I mean, I'm. Mm-hmm. our family is, is I mean, we... We're complete. Um, it's tricky now. I mean, it's just tricky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you sure. You date somebody and you and you pretty quickly decide how they might fit, or if they mm-hmm. unequivocally, you wouldn't even let them near your kids. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and truth be told, I just don't feel like I'm mm-hmm. missing it anymore. I mean, I yeah. love. I love the idea of it, and I would love mm-hmm. to be loved and to love. But my first loves are my boys, and whatever mm. I bring in or whatever comes in, I just—I'm open. I'll just say that. I'm open. 
when it came down to, you know, I my my girls were adopted too. They're four and two. And um, I've they know they're adopted. Yes. Obviously, I've told them. Yeah. And I know more questions are coming as we go. Yeah. And I I guess I'm looking for a little advice because I don't really quite know. Like, first I thought, should I volunteer information? I thought, no, let me wait till they ask me. Mm-hmm. There's such tricky conversations to have. Yeah. How did you know how to navigate those waters? Well, I had two different situations with my mm-hmm. boys. I knew Wyatt's birth mom, and I did mm-hmm. not know Levi's birth parents. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I did with Wyatt was I made his story. I made a book, The Story of Wyatt. Mm-hmm. And I had pictures of the day he was born. My mom and dad were there, mm-hmm. and I got to take him home. He was four hours old. And so mm-hmm. I had all these mm-hmm. pictures, and it explained who everybody was, and it talked about how, you know, I'd... I'd I'd asked God to be a mom and that I knew that God was going to take care of me and that if I was supposed to be a mom, I would be. And that lo and behold, God brought this, brought you into my life. And, um, but that he came through somebody else's tummy, but I got to be his forever mom, you know? Um, so anyway, he, from a very early age, not only was not interested in it, didn't want to see it at all. Okay. Um, and, and, even really up until the age that he was able to understand it, well, actually, period. Mm. Um, he's not wanted to see that book. He hasn't been ready. He mm. he chose his life, and he didn't want to know about the rest of it. Uh, Levi is very—I mean, he's very pragmatic. There is nothing mm-hmm. he will not say or ask. <laughs> um, if you want to know if you look fat in a pair of jeans, he will tell you. <laughs> Um, and he's right off the cuff. Uh, were my birth parents mm. short? Because I really want to play basketball. I mean, th- these are the things that matter to him, you know. Um, he asks questions, um, and he mm. has the story of Levi as well. And mm-hmm. he likes it. He doesn't want to look at it. But he's going to be my—I'm going to go out and find him on my own. And mm-hmm. and I've told both mm-hmm. my boys, when you are ready, you know, mm-hmm. after when you become old enough, like 18, I'll help you. We'll go find him mm-hmm. together. And mm-hmm. nothing will come between the way you and I love each other, but you have mm-hmm. a lot of love. So, mm-hmm. and you love people in a lot of different ways. And families look differently. Um, neither one of them have asked me why their birth moms gave them away. Mm-hmm. And some of those questions will be hard. I mean, I don't know yeah. how you feel about it, but I do have that fear of, okay, someday when I'm older, they go find their younger mom, mm-hmm. and suddenly mm-hmm. I'm going to spend Christmas at my mom and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or with my mm-hmm. real brother. And mm-hmm. I I get emotional about it, and I get scared. But yeah. you know what? It's like I tell my dad when he's worrying. There's no point mm-hmm. in worrying about it. It's not going to fix it. You know, yeah. when you when you get there, you get there. So that's just the way I'm approaching it. I think, yeah, that sounds healthy. And I like the sort of God's got this. You know, I have those feelings too. And they don't ask many questions now. They're right. they're super young, but they do know a lot of things. So yes. yeah. I just, I, I literally, some days I get this ouch in my, in my stomach. I'm like, yeah. okay, got to yeah. be ready. Like, how's this going to, how's this going to go? What do they think when you're on stage? Are they wigged that you're up there killing it? Or um, do they think it's... 
at early days, they didn't really understand it. Like I've got videos of both the boys coming out in their PJs. Um, <laughs> I had this, had this wonderful nanny who's now my assistant. And they would always come say goodnight before they'd go to bed, like at 8.30, mm-hmm. you know, and I'd just be getting mm-hmm. started. And, mm-hmm. and they'd come out and sometimes they'd come out on stage in their PJs and do a little <laughs> jig or whatever. And they just seeing all those people, that's, you know, they, they didn't really understand what that meant. And then when I, when I started making this last, the record before the last called Be Myself, and I was making it during school hours, I would go pick them up and I'd bring them back to the studio and we'd work for another couple hours. They Mm -hmm. got to be around during the making of that record and understand, oh, this isn't just something where she goes out on stage and sings songs. She Mm -hmm. works, like it's a workplace Mm -hmm. and it's like serious work hours and, doing things over and over. And then they they got interested in it and got to like learn about some of the engineering stuff. And then it became like, oh, okay. So she's not just famous because she has like All I Want to Do or Soak Up the Sun (laughs) or the song from Cars. And that made a difference. But, you know, now that they're older, um, you know, they'll come to the side of the stage and wave and then they'll go back and want to get on their iPads. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, "Ah, Mm -hmm. ah, no. (laughs) No. No. Oh my. <laughs> so they 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 make money by helping out. Um they <laughs> oh, is that how they, they make do? five dollars a gig for bringing out guitars. Two summers ago when we were out with Phil Collins in Europe, about halfway through yeah. the gig, Levi's like, we're walking off stage and Levi's like, Mom, can we negotiate a flat rate? Five dollars a gig doesn't seem like very much. I'm like, Are you kidding me? You're nine years old. <laughs> how do you know what a flat rate is? <laughs> how do you even get that? <laughs> Um, which one of your songs uh, speaks to you right now? Gosh, that's really that's really hard. Yeah, um, so many. I, I mean, we've done a lot of virtual gigs this year, and I find mm-hmm. that singing uh, "Every Day Is a Winding Road." I mean, I mm-hmm. sometimes get emotional about it because the actual um, the actual inspiration of the song was a friend of mine who who committed suicide. I know that doesn't mm-hmm. sound like that kind of song, but it it was, and I wasn't going to put it on the record and. My engineer at the time, who also was friends with this person, said, you have to put it on the record because of the line, um, I feel like a stranger in my own life. I'm just wondering why I feel so alone, why I'm a stranger in my own life. And Mm. when Mm. I sing that now, it feels more immediate to me because of what all has been going on in the last year and a half. And also just the change in all of us because I am older and I remember what life was like, you know, Mm -hmm. even at an early age before social media, um, Mm -hmm. before cable, um, Mm -hmm. before pundits and before... Groupthink, yeah. Yes, and also before music became so kind of... uh, explicitly porn-ish, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. there was just something more innocent about life. Um, mm-hmm. You know, now I, I some some of the lines and some of the songs mean more to me because of my sadness about where we are as, as a people. Mm. How do you feel about having young kids then? Because sometimes I get into a funk too and I think, wow, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta really, we got work to do. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, well, talking about the adoption thing, you know, we, mm-hmm. one of the things that I always feel like is so important is that your kids never feel like there are any secrets. You know, um, mm-hmm. I think secrets can be so damaging mm-hmm. um, and so wounding. And so I, my intention has always been to raise my kids. Uh, I will answer anything they ask me. 
just trying to be honest about what it means to be a good person, what it means to be ethical, mm-hmm. empathetic, compassionate. Um, you know, they mm-hmm. they at a certain point will hear those words and feel like I'm being lecturous. But mm-hmm. um, one of the greatest gifts that you and I have is getting to raise people. And the people that mm-hmm. we're raising are going to inherit what we have and just giving them mm-hmm. some tools to deal with what they're yeah. going to be handed um, so that they can understand this isn't, human nature is not to be greedy. It's not to yeah. be mean. It's not to get yeah. one over. Yes. You didn't come in that way. You yeah. get programmed to be that way. So, yeah. you know, just constantly trying to hammer into them that your mm-hmm. best self will always be heart-driven. Yeah. Well, I feel like they're looking at it um, mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. And you, I mean, I, I think obviously what you're saying is, and I believe this wholeheartedly, there's no stronger example than modeling because it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what you say. It's what they watch that becomes mm-hmm. what they emulate. And I've, I've told this story so many times, it just, but it cracks me up every time. And it happens every day. There's always a couple of guys along the way um, on our way to school. They're always asking for money and we always give them money. And my 14-year-old will always say, Mom, how much money do you have? And I'll say, mm-hmm. I've got, I have a five and I have a 20. And he'll be like, give me the 20. And he always mm-hmm. wants to give mm-hmm. money. Wow. And it's been that way since he was little. My 11-year-old, who wanted to get, negotiate the flat fee, is like, Mom, <laughs> you know he lives in a nice apartment and like uh, it, it downtown. Or, you know, you, you know he's going to walk around the corner and get in his Maserati. <laughs> That's so funny. That's one of the things um, that I always tell the boys. Everything that you do in life is about intention. You can't, when you give somebody money, your blessing is in the giving. What they do with it has nothing to do with your blessing. And it has everything to do with intention. And I really believe that. And I think some lessons, you don't get to the second you get them. But other lessons, mm-hmm. if you watch it enough, you get you get what it is. And I, okay, I just really is, believe modeling is much more powerful than anything else. But that statement right there, what you just said, is such a great thing to remember. Like, your job is to give. Yes. Whatever they do is their job. That's okay. Right. It's not your, it's not your concern. Yeah. So, so just, just lastly, do you feel at this moment in life— you know, um, optimistic. Like I hear, I hear um, we're all mixed bags, obviously. Um, but do you feel, do you feel optimistic in this moment? I do. You know, um, Mm -hmm. one of the things that's been funny, I've been talking about people more recently have been talking about how do you stay grounded? How do you stay, Mm -hmm. how do you keep your peace? Um, and I have to have hope. I mean, once you lose hope, then where do you go from there? Um, and I see hope in my kids' eyes. I mean, they are brilliant, they are asking mm-hmm. hard questions that I wouldn't have asked when I was 11 and 14, mm. but they are wise. And mm. this generation of kids, um, you know, they're they're more prepared than, than we were. And, and yeah. I do have a lot of hope, a lot of optimism. Cheryl, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank Hoda, you so much you. for visiting with me. I love you too. Let's get our Come kids to marry you- each other. Oh my God, that would be perfect. Yes. (laughs) All right, honey. Good seeing you. It's good to see you too. Take care. Thanks, Hoda. You too. Bye. Bye. Hey, 
guys, thanks so much for listening and going on this journey with me. If you like what you've heard, and I sure hope you do, please give Making Space a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Making Space with Hoda Kotb is produced by Allison Berger and Ursula Summer, along with associate producer Olivia Rouchard, researcher Rachel Young, and audio engineer Bob Mallory. Original music by John Estes. Bryson Barnes is our technical director. Minna Kathoria is our executive producer. Soraya Gage is our general manager. And Madeline Herringer is our head of editorial. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.